In the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, <clears throat> we're going to be giving our attention to verses 8 through verse 13. And again, for our consideration tonight, what we want to look at <clears throat> is the scriptural proof that the Son of God, the incarnate Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, is God in human flesh. It is a mystery beyond all mysteries, isn't it? How an infinite God could take on finite humanity and take on a body that was subject to what? To dying. That is a mystery beyond all mysteries. And theologians and academians have given a lot of attention throughout 2,000 years of church history to try to explain that interaction. And that interaction, at least in my small mind of thinking, is really infallible. You really just can't come to grips around it with your mind. Here is a man with two separate natures, having the nature of God, God in human flesh, and the nature of of man. They are not intermingled. They are yet separate, yet function as one in the man Christ Jesus. And that is very, very hard to understand. And people throughout the years have gotten wrong on that issue. Some have emphasized his humanity to the point that they denied his deity. And of course, that is a non-saving belief. And then there are others who so emphasized his deity that it is hard for them to comprehend God in Christ entering into any type of um, union or oneness with us as sinful beings. And He is fully God and fully man. And if I may say so, it's because God Himself said so. So as we open up here and look at Hebrews chapter 1, Let's begin reading in verse 8. And we'll notice that this is the same God that is mentioned in verse 1 who spoke long ago, but in these last days have spoken to us in His Son. And so in verse 5, to which of the angels did God ever say this to? And again in verse 6, When God brings the firstborn into the world, God said something. And then verse 8, but God says something again. What does God say? Verse 8. But of the Son, He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of His kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And, verse 10, God again addresses the Son. 
You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they all will become old like a garment, and like a mantle you will roll them up. Like a garment they will also be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. But to which of the angels did God ever say this to? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So again, you can see that he's proving that the means of the revelation in these last days is higher and infinitely superior that God in the Old Testament spoke by many portions and in many ways to our fathers, but He spoke to them in the prophets. Godly men for sure, but still sinful men. God used those men to write down God-breathed words and they were communicated to the fathers in those prophets. But in our days, in the last days, and those last days started at the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Those last days are still continuing today, and we are rapidly approaching the last day, singular. But in these last days, God spoke to us in His Son. His Son not only spoke the words of God, and He taught the words of God, and He restored understanding to those words. You remember in the Sermon on the Mount, He would say, You have heard it's been said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I'm saying to you that what that passage really means is, if you look on a woman or someone looks on a man from a woman's side, to lust after them, they have already broke this law where? In their heart. heart, That the law was there to show our heart situation. And of course, when you apply that law to men and women's hearts, what they find out is that they are sinful creatures. That not only have they broke the law of God, They have sinned against the one who gave the law, the lawgiver, God Himself. And so God is speaking to us in His Son, not only through the message He communicated, but by the very being of His life. His being, God taking on human flesh, is also the communication of God. Everything the Son did is exactly what the Father would do. Every movement that He made would be exactly the movement that who made? The Father moved. Every tear, every sorrow, every grief, every emotion that He experienced would have been exactly the type of emotion that God the Father would experience. That is amazing when you think about a human being functioning in that way, isn't it? 
There are times that I actually have prayed, Lord, I want my walk to be your walk. I want my speech to be your speech. I want my eyes to observe the things that you would observe. I want my feelings and my emotions to be exactly like yours. But I understand that when I'm praying that, I'm praying that I would be like Christ. But that I would never fully or even nearly accomplish that goal until the day that I see Him. Here this is of the Son. He is the heir of all things. He is the one that all the promises have been made to and to whom would be fulfilled. He created all the time segments of human history. He is the brightness or the radiation or the radiance of the perfections of God. He is the one that not only sustains all things in the material creation, He is also moving everything towards its conclusion. He is the one that took on human flesh. He earned our righteousness. He suffered our condemnation. He purged our sins. He is our atonement. And He did that all by Himself. And He was resurrected on that third day, as Psalm 2 would say, that God has chosen His appointed King, and it is His Son. So therefore, kiss the Son. Well, where do kings go? They go to a throne, don't they? And that's exactly where the Lord Jesus Christ is today. He is on the throne. He is on the throne of God. And as I was talking to someone this morning, it's not that there's two thrones and there's God the Father and on His right hand there's another throne, God the Son. They are on the same throne. God uses terminology for us as human beings to understand. And we understand that when you say, I'm sitting you at my right hand, that that is a place of authority, that is a place of privilege, isn't it? That's why the disciples said, Lord, would you allow us, <clears throat> the mother asked them, would you allow my sons to be on your right hand and on your left? What was she saying? That they would be in the most exalted places that they could be as you as ruler. And of course our Lord said, that, I don't have the right to give that. Only my Father has the right to give that. But I'll ask you a question. Can you drink of the cup that I'm going to drink? And of course they said, what? They said, of course we can. (laughs) And he said, you will do that. But they really didn't know what they were asking or saying yes to. Folks, that right hand is a place of authority. It's a place of honor. It is a place of dignity. It is a place of rulership. And that is where our Lord is. And of course, remember, to see Him is to see who? It is to see the Father. So on the face of Jesus Christ, Paul would write that the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, the radiant perfections of God, would be seen where? In the face of Jesus Christ. That's who we are looking to. And folks, our Lord and Savior and our King is not just on the same level as angels. He is superior to angels. 
Not only did He create them, but if you notice in verses 5 and 6, God says this about angels. Is there any angel that God looked at and said, you are my son, today I have begotten you? And the answer to that is what? No. No. Who did He say that to? He said it to the incarnate Son. He is the only begotten of the Father. In other words, He is the one made manifest, brought forth as it were. He is the only begotten of the Father, and God the Father calls Him my what? My Son. My Son. That was never said of any angels. Not only that, but it says in verse 5 that God says concerning the Son that He would be a father to him. He's actually quoting from the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel. I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. And of course, God the Father never said to any angel when He brought the firstborn, that is, when the incarnate Son of God when the Son of God left the throne of glory and He came to this earth, a body God had prepared for Him, and He filled that body and became a man, He never said this to the Son, but He did say it to the angels, verse 6. Let all the angels of God do what? Worship Him. Now folks, that's God saying to created angels about the incarnate Son, worship Him. That is amazing, isn't it? Because worship is only due to who? To God. And God alone. In fact, when John saw the angel and fell down at his feet, in an attempt to worship that angel, the angel told him in Revelation, do not worship me. Worship God. And of course, the angels himself were created. Verse 7, he makes his angels spirits or winds and he minister, his ministers a flame, a fire. They, angels are created beings. And so our Lord is superior to angels and He is not their equal. No angel has ever been called the Son. No angel has ever had in an intimate relationship the Father. No angel has ever been said, now worship that angel. Lucifer desired that worship, didn't he? But God did not say that. Every angel, including Lucifer, is to bow their knee to Him. And folks, one day, those fallen angels are going to bow their knee to Him. And they will confess. And they will be thrown into the lake of what? Lake of fire forever and ever. And that Son is seated, as we read in verse 13, He is seated at God's right hand and He is there until... His enemies are made a footstool for His feet until everything in all creation, visible, invisible, on earth, in the heavens, under the earth, all things are brought under His feet. What does that mean? That everything is submissive to Him. They are all captive to His will. 
And we know that Isaiah says, God says through the prophet Isaiah, one day every knee will bow to me and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now that doesn't settle in your hearts and really confirm your faith in the risen Son. I don't know what will. But here in verses 8 and 9, He's going to tell us explicitly that Jesus Christ is God. And in verses 10 and 12, He's going to tell us explicitly that Jesus Christ is Creator. So let's look at verses 8 and 9. The Scripture says, and He's quoting from Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. We won't go there for sake of time, but He says here, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The righteous scepter is the scepter of His kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with all of gladness above your companions. Now Psalm 45 is a beautiful psalm. It is actually a psalm about the coronation of a king. And if you read that psalm, and many commentators head in this direction, they'll actually say that the psalm was written over Solomon in his coronation. But God says here in these verses that actually He's not referring to Solomon, who would only have been a shadow and a type, right? But He is actually referring to the King of Kings. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. The psalm is written concerning the Son. And in that psalm, God says, look at verse 8 of Hebrews 1, God says to this King, to the Son, your throne, does He have a throne? And God calls Him What? God. Does everybody see that? Hebrews 1 verse 8. Thy throne, O God. God addresses the Son, and He calls, not only does He call the Son the Son, but He also calls the Son God. God calling the incarnate Son God. Now that can boggle one's mind. God has spoken in His Son. He has manifested His Son. He has a father-son relationship with the Son. He tells the angels to worship the Son. And here in verses 8 and 9, He calls Him God. And folks, that word God is the word Elohim. In the beginning, what? God. Elohim created the heavens and the earth. God is calling Him Elohim. That throne, therefore, is a permanent throne. It is an eternal throne. And it is an authoritative 
throne. And of course, all of that is in contrast to the Hebrews' fixation with angels. And the reason why they were fixated with angels is because if you look down in chapter 2, in verse 2, in referring to the law, he says, if the words spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty. So when talking about the law, it was actually mediated, God mediated it through angelic beings in the giving of that law. So if that's the case, well, angels, they're pretty important, right? And of course, decades ago, it's not so much true today, I don't think, but decades ago, there was a fad that swept through Christianity where there was a fixation with angels. Even Hollywood would have shows titled about angels. Well, folks, Jesus Christ is higher than an angel. He is God. He is Elohim in human flesh. And here's what's interesting about His reign. Look at verse 8. It says the righteous scepter is the scepter of His kingdom. In other words, folks, His kingdom is going to be characterized by what? Righteousness. The kingdoms of this life are not characterized by righteousness at all. In fact, folks, you and I as believers, that is really our grief with our government, isn't it? That they say things and do not do. They promise and do not keep. They say things that are deceitful and we take them for their word and then they do the exact opposite of what they say. Am I right? They subtly come against the church of Jesus Christ. They harm the poor. They rob from the rich. I mean, these people, their reign is completely about unrighteousness. And folks, it's always been that way, but in our nation, the days have gotten darker and darker in this regard. This will not be true with the reign of Jesus Christ. His reign whether it's present spiritual or one day on this earth in the millennial or one day eternally in the new heavens and the new earth, it will be absolutely characterized by absolute righteousness. There will be no darkness in it all. And that's exactly what Peter says, right? We're looking for a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness we delight in that reign a reign that will have at its sphere absolute righteousness but folks not only will that kingdom be characterized by righteousness but if you'll notice in verse 8 it is a righteous scepter is the scepter of the kingdom in other words The kingdom will be characterized by righteousness, but he will govern how? He will govern righteously. His rule is righteous. His ways are always true. 
And that is what we have ahead of us. And folks, that's what He does in the church today. His judgments as are recorded in our Bible, they are righteous and true. That is one of His names. We are not to doubt that. We really shouldn't even be struggling with that. But folks, we have a sinful nature that hates righteousness. And as much as I would desire absolute righteousness would characterize the kingdoms of this world, and I long for that day, and the rule of that these kingdoms would be righteous, I know for a fact that unless I am completely changed into the image of Christ, that I would chafe against that type of reign. You think you wouldn't? Do you think that if God came and under absolute righteousness, no wiggle room in here, no gray area, no getting away with a little bit. Folks, we have a sinful nature that hates that. And thanks be to God, we are being changed more and more into His image, therefore loving that type of rule more and more, longing for the day in which there will be no sinful nature and our whole delight will be in that righteous. Can you imagine a world like that? Totally righteous, ruled in righteousness, and every human being delighting in it. I would call that refreshing. (laughs) This is what characterizes His government and this is what characterizes His kingdom. Now folks, what is interesting about His reign and the fact that God Himself calls Him God is who He was prior to His sitting on that throne. Right? Your throne, he's talking to the Son. Where's the Son? He's on a throne, right? Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. But who was he prior to sitting on that throne? Well, verse 9 tells us that. Jesus Christ loved what? righteousness, and he hated what? Lawlessness. Note, therefore. Everybody see the word therefore. You loved righteousness, you hated lawlessness, therefore, this is what happened. God. Your God. The one he called who? The one He called God. God, your God, has anointed you with an oil of what? Above your companions. Now folks, what we do know about Jesus Christ is this, in contrary to the way He's presented today. He loved something And he hated something. 
Now, hate's a strong word, isn't it? If my children came and said, I hate him, I rebuke them for using that word. I would say to them, you're not to hate. You're to love one another. Hate is a very, very strong word. But folks, he loved righteousness. He loved God's righteousness. And he hated lawlessness. That was his demeanor. His love was a perfect love. His hatred was a perfect hatred. And folks, as a result of that, he was given as a reward the anointing. Look at it again. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. Now, kings were anointed, right? God has anointed you with an oil of gladness above everyone else in all the world. And folks, what we learn with this is this, that there was in our Lord, in the midst of all the sorrow, in the midst of all the grief, in the midst of all of His hatred, of all the lawlessness that He was baptized into in this dark, dark, wicked world, He was anointed with an oil that caused Him inner gladness. He was anointed with gladness. And brethren, what we walk away from this is what? We're being conformed into His image. And folks, it's very important that we hear this. The degree of your joy, the degree of your gladness, is proportional to the degree of your love of righteousness and your hatred of lawlessness. Does everybody see that? He he loved righteousness, the righteousness of His Father, and He hated lawlessness. So God anointed Him. And we think of anointing, we think of kingship, we think of the anointing of the Holy Spirit. We think of, isn't joy one of the fruit of the Spirit? He anointed the Son with the oil of gladness. And folks, I think that one of the things that you and I need so desperately is the inner joy of the Holy Spirit. Even though we live in a world of sorrow, don't we? And we live in a world of darkness. And we live in a world of lawlessness. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, I don't mean by that that you walk around smiling and laughing all the time. Jesus did not do that. But in his soul, 
He had a joy beyond joys. It was his joy to walk in that joy. And he would say to those disciples, listen to what he says, he's going to the cross, my joy I give to you. Not as the world gives, so I give to you. He has given to us His joy. What was that joy? It was an anointing of gladness from God the Father. Why did God anoint Him with the oil of gladness? He anointed Him because He loved righteousness and He hated what? Lawlessness. And folks, don't you wish your love was greater? Well, your love can't get greater unless your hatred gets greater. Some preacher I heard preach, you can't love flowers and weeds at the same time. If you love flowers, you don't want what into your flower bed? Weeds. Happiness does not come by our compromise. Happiness does not come by our worldliness. All of those things, all of those so-called happinesses are temporary. His joy and His anointing is eternal. So Jesus Christ, the Son, is called who in this passage? God. Secondly and lastly, in verses 10 through 12, this is the passage that we'll be dealing with in the future on Wednesday nights in Psalm 102. But for now, I just want to say that this shows that the Son is the Creator. Look at what it says. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. Now, in verse 8 of Hebrews 1, God calls the Son God. But in verse 10, He calls the Son what? Lord. Everybody see that? That word Lord is not the word Anonai. It is the word Yahweh. God the Father, Yahweh, is calling the Son what? Yahweh. And folks, that shouldn't bother us because God the Son, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit are not three gods. They're what? They're one God. They're one essence. He is called Lord. He is called Yahweh and He is pictured as the Creator. In the beginning, He laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens that we see above us and wherein God dwells are the works of His hands. 
But folks, all the visible creation, all of that which God the Son created through the Word of God, so that what is visible was not made from what is visible, all of that visible creation will one day perish. Everybody see that? Look at verse 11. They will what? They will perish. But who remains? The Son, the incarnate Son will remain. Everything that He created, the foundation of the earth and the heavens is the work of His hands. Verse 11, they will all become old like a garment and like a mantle, God the Son will roll them up and like a garment, they will also be changed. But whatever happens with the material universe and the creation The Son will be, verse 12, the what? The same. His years will not come to an end. That's a promise by God the Father. Now folks, this idea of the creation as being very temporary is woven throughout our whole Bible. The world thinks that the material universe has been forever. It has not been forever. And it will not be forever, thank God. What is going on with our material universe even right now as I speak? Well, folks, God pictures the material universe, like a tent garment. That tent garment hides God from our sight. Folks, if you take a tent garment and you block the sun, what happens? It gets dark. This tent garment is a temporary structure. And that visible creation, and even the invisible, it will all be aging like a garment. And folks, you know how garments age, right? You get something new, it looks sharp, it looks crisp, it looks nice, it looks good. And by and by, the more you wear it, and the more you wash it, and the more you dry it, <laughs> that beautiful blue starts turning fade, fades away. That beautiful garment around the edges of its creases become frayed. That garment, if it's exposed to moth, can get holes in it. Now I know the world thinks those are cool and good clothes. <laughs> And I told my wife, and I'm not trying to be offensive, I told my wife, I said, you don't need to pay for that, just take it out of someone's garbage and put it on. We get rips in it, we get tears in our clothes to eventually, 
hopefully, you look in your closet one day and you say what? That's got to go away. Folks, that is what is happening to this temporal creation history. It is as weak as a garment. And folks, this creation, depending on how you date it, 8,000 years, 6,000 years, 10,000 years, 12,000 years. It's not billions. This creation, like a garment, has been worn on this physical universe for some 10,000 years. Would you say it's getting old? It is getting old. And folks, when the scientists look through their telescopes and they look out into this vast universe, what they see is things changing. Stars blow up. Stars collapse. Gases get consumed. They see all this going on. And they see it as the birth of new things. God says... It's a garment decaying and wearing away. And folks, just as soon as the usefulness of this creation is over, look at what it says. You will roll them up and like a garment, God will change the clothing of the universe. But guess who never changes? The sun. The sun never changes. And the incarnate sun, his years will not come to an end. And folks, what we know about this is this, is that God is not moved by the changes going on in creation. And neither should we. I want to let you know I am not the least bit concerned that a comet is going to hit the earth. I am not the least bit concerned that somehow man has to figure out how to control the weather and how to control the things of the universe. I am not concerned that we need to have some kind of rocket so if some humongous planet starts coming that we can blow it out before it hits the universe. These are the types of things that the world scientists are concerned about today. Why am I not concerned? Are you just cavalier? Are you saying what will be will be? No. I know that whatever happens in the creation, it is the Son who has done it. Amen? Did He create it? Is He sustaining it? Is He bringing it to its appointed end? Yes, He is the sovereign one and He is in control and the creation doesn't affect Him. He's the one that affects the creation. This is the one who entered into our world and took on human flesh. This is the Son of God. And folks, one day, Hebrews tells us that all of creation will be shook and everything will experience a universal 
earthquake except for one thing. The heavenly Jerusalem that God made. That will not be shook and none of its inhabitants will be shook. And in that heavenly Jerusalem is the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ Himself. So church, we don't need to be shook. We need to put our faith in the risen Son. But folks, not only is the creation doing this, but if we turn over here, and I'll conclude with this, if we turn over to chapter 8 of this book, what we find is that there was another thing that was temporal and was weak. Not only was the creation temporal and weak, but if you look in the middle of chapter 8, he talks about a new covenant. He talks about in verse 7 that there was a first covenant and that first covenant was not faultless. And the problem with the covenant wasn't with the one who gave it. It wasn't with the covenant itself, verse 8, but the thought was with humanity. Everybody see that in verse 8. Finding fault with them. The law was a good and holy law. You agree with that? The problem was we didn't have the ability and the power to what? To keep it. We broke that law. The fault was with us, not with the rule giver or the law giver. But what I want us to note is he says in verse 8, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new what? A new covenant. Everybody see that? Okay. Now just stopping with that, I want you to go down to the end of chapter 8. When God says a new covenant, verse 13, what does that mean? Folks, if I have something and I say, here it is, and I say, I'm going to give you a new one, what does that mean? It means the first one is obsolete, right? When he said a new covenant, he made the first obsolete. Now note this. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old. Everybody see that? In other words, that first covenant, Jeremiah said, was already weak and decaying. It was already old and needed to be replaced. And the fault wasn't with God and the fault wasn't in the Mosaic Law. The fault was with us. It needed to be replaced. Was it replaced? It was replaced in the Son of God. And folks, the creation will grow old and it will be replaced. And it will be replaced with a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. Folks, this is the one in whom God has spoken to us through. Not through sinful prophets. Not through created angels. He has spoken to us directly in the Son who took on human flesh. 
The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld its glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He's the message. And God the Father called Him Elohim. He's God. And God the Father called Him Yahweh. He's the Lord. And folks, if God has called Him those two things, you and I can have the absolute 110% assurance that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh and that He is a worthy Savior and His Word is worthy and He is King of kings and Lord of lords just like Psalm 2 says, He is the one that is sitting on the very throne of God who will reign forever and ever as a man over men, over angels, over all creation, because it was all for Him and to Him and through Him forever and ever and ever. This was the plan before the foundation of the world. Let's go to our Lord in prayer.